This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I am one of the hosts of this podcast. I am here with my co-host, JJ Genflone. What up, boys and girls? We're trying a new uh, recording system today, and I've decided that means we should be old-timey radio hosts. All right. For some reason, that reminded me of The Shadow. Somebody let me listen to some of those a while back. Oh, nice. I watched that awful Clint Eastwood movie. Well, part of it, like, uh, play Misty for me uh, a few days ago. And I don't know why, but now that's that's also ruined. I fell down a Clint Eastwood hole. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to talk about, drumroll, I'm sorry, I don't have the sound effects ready. We're going to talk about white slavery. But it's a matter of which white slavery. Sla- yes. Now... People with white skin have been slaves historically, but that's not quite what we're talking about today. Instead, we're going to talk about a specific version of that term. So, JJ, take it away. So, we're talking about white slavery, which is a one that's a pretty loaded term because Seth and I have done previous podcasts before about using the phrase human trafficking rather than slavery to discuss modern day slavery. And one of the reasons why this term is weird is that we've got a mix of historical sort of like pre and during transatlantic slavery, slavery. uh, And then we have white slavery and like quotation marks. So a really quick background on the history of white slavery is that this is generally originally this term is used to describe the chattel slavery of white Europeans by other Europeans or non-Europeans. So examples of this include, you know, Scots being taken while, and other sailors more broadly actually um, being taken by North Africans during conflicts into slavery or, some European groups that were pillaged specifically by the Vikings for the use of forced labor. This also sometimes what gets brought up in here, although like whether we're going to define this as white or not, probably shouldn't, but just sort of the slavery that happened broadly um, throughout ancient Rome. And then later the feudalism that happened throughout Europe more broadly from since sort of um, normally like the time period that gets trotted out as like the 1400s to the 1800s. So like a very broad historical period where you have slavery that is legal, although like obviously very different from region to region, but primarily involves in this particular glance, Europeans. So white, quote unquote. Uh, This is certainly something that is true. Certainly there is historic cases of slavery early on one of the first podcasts. I think you and I talked about this idea of ancient Roman slavery and sort of the ancient enslavement of the Jews in Egypt and sort of all these different historical cases. But what happens is that in the 1800s, we move away as we start to see uh, the, the moving away from legal slavery that is very sort of ad hoc. So what happened a lot with this in terms of feudalism or serfs is that like you were, you worked on the land and all of your labor was owned, but technically you weren't, or you were a slave for a set number of years, or you could earn your freedom to sort of a legal slavery um, of like, say, Christians in the 1800s into the Barbary slave trade that looks a lot more like traditional transatlantic slavery. But I do want to point out that this was different because in many cases, 
um, these these people, while while being defined as slaves, these white slaves were able to sort of integrate into their larger society. They had a lot more freedoms to move, to move around, and there was always the possibility that you could buy, trade, or earn your way out of slavery. Doesn't mean it wasn't awful and horrible and terrible. It just means that while it was very similar to transatlantic slavery, it was sort of distinct in a number of different ways. But then what happens when slavery gets abolished, right? Um, both in England and the U.S. and then eventually and sort of the further colonies of England and then eventually in the Caribbean island countries. So slavery is now legally abolished. So what and we have when, now is... When was that, oh, JJ? Well, I, I purposely focus on the 1900s for when I'm like, white slavery becomes this very distinct and other thing, because while a lot of people list a lot of different dates from when slavery finally became like fully illegal in the world, because like, so for example, like in 1865, we have the 13th Amendment in the US that abolishes slavery, but in 1807, British passes the abolition of the slave of the uh, passes abolition of the slave trade act but it takes them another like 20 years or so to finally actually eradicate it from their colonies um in 1811 sla uh spain got rid of slavery but cuba kept it then you sort of have the slave-led uprisings in haiti that eventually you know end in 1804 so it's, it's, there's a very long period of just sort of every sort of independent state that had previously dealt with slaves in some way, finally legally eradicating slavery. And then in like in the British case, slowly over the course of several years, getting rid of slavery. So I like to say by 1900, though, because that's when we're hit with everything at 1900 going into 1900. This new exciting time. Legal slavery, with the exception of Mauritania, though, is officially eradicated statewide. Does that make sense? That is. And there's so many other things going on in history. And it's always interesting when you read one book on one topic, like uh, one of the books we're drawing from is Sex Trafficking Scandal and the Transformation of Journalism, yes. 1885 to 1917. It's one we both read and JJ will be drawing from some other books as well. But you, you read like here's what was happening in this space, but then there's all these other things going on soon after more people going to college and, you know, extending a youth to like 12 years, there's multiple financial crises that have happened. Yeah. And, and certainly still there's a lot of issues going on too, like even just like directly dealing with trafficking in a way that is like visible in terms of like even going into the 1900s, we're still dealing with um, Jim Crow. Well, and peonage that yeah. there's forms of slavery that are continuing leading up to World War One, which is one of the reasons we're doing this topic. It's the 100 year anniversary of the armistice of World War One on November 11th. And World War One was around 1914, 1918. We're, we're also right on the cusp of a few things uh, racially where the Klan has its rebirth in 1918 after this, and where we have the Immigration Act of 1924 and just kind of backlash toward immigration, which has some relevance to this discussion. So those are a few things going on. Do you have any other context you want to add into as far as culturally, historically? Yeah, I, I would just like to point out that 
this is also, and from the time period we're talking about, which is going to be the 1900s to roughly the late 2000s, is, well, the, the late um, 2010s, is that you're going through a lot of social and moral shifts, particularly in the, in the U.S. context. You're being rocked by two world wars, a number of wars in the Asian theater, the Cold War, the the invention and the use of the nuclear bomb, like you're going through a lot of social changes that I think will be reflected in this discussion of white slavery. But I want to be very clear moving forward now that I'm talking like 1900 on that this is white slavery with slavery like sort of in quotations, because what this should be is human trafficking. Slavery refers to legalized ownership of an individual that has been normalized. Trafficking is the illegal, deviant ownership of a person. So I just want to make it clear, even though white slavery is the term most often used and trotted out a lot, there's a lot of problems with using that word. So I just want to be sort of clear. Now, one of the other aspects which will relate to this is just the media. and Yeah, and that ties into the moral changes and social changes too. It does, but it's interesting to think about we have all these standards we like to talk about, like, oh, media should be objective and should try to cover both sides and, and uh, you know, like good things, like that journalists should do their research and be factual. And that isn't always the way that journalism has been. The journalistic standards we have now were not common 100 years ago. And so it's a different time. The journalism wasn't as strict as it is now and uh, that also plays into this discussion yeah there's, so yeah, there's just there's a yeah. whole lot to unpack here and i on um i'll be referencing a number of books and actually films that i would recommend for for y'all to to see and check out if this is something that you're interested in um a lot of them are, are very great to watch there's one that in particular um that i will definitely make sort of students watch as i go out into the world. So where do you want to start now that we've got given some context? So I'm actually just going to go, this is actually going to be a pretty linear podcast and that I'm going to go time-wise, like down a sort of timeline. Okay. So what I want to start with is in the 19, in 1904. Okay. There's the international agreement for the suppression of the white slave trafficked act. And so this is a legal act on the books that is meant to talk about moving the, the keeping and protection of especially of in particular white women from being moved to uh, Africa and the Middle East from the from the point of view of like this this will be protection for them. And so this is a law that is literally specifically written for the protection of white women from what was considered to be these foreign, scary males that were coming for them, going to murder them, sell them, use them for prostitution. And what this is coming from initially is this increased urbanization of women. So we're seeing in the 1900s the admittance of women into an urban workforce, so into factory work, into retail spaces, into domestic work in the cities away from their families. And then you're also seeing for the first time men and women 
having interactions together really like broad like like widespread not just sort of lower classes but upper classes middle classes sort of this widespread mixing of the sexes in a way that hadn't been done before without uh chaperones or some sort of other like quote unquote moral protection so like you see you see courting rituals of men and women like walking in the park together without a chaperone taking off and you see sort of the explosion of prostitution. Now, prostitution has always existed, and prostitution had always existed, especially in urban areas, but generally was confined to particular districts. You know, so you went to, say, like the white, where Jack the Ripper is famous for attacking prostitutes. You went to the Whitechapel district of London if you wanted to find a prostitute, or you went, if you were very wealthy, to a very particular, like, wealthy brothel. You just couldn't find it on any old street corner. Well, with increased urbanization and sort of this urban boom and a lack of housing, suddenly you have classes a lot closer to one another and mixing and rubbing elbows. So the fact now that you're seeing people in prostitution starts this mass moral panic that women are in prostitution like crazy and that people are being forced into prostitution by these very scary pimps sort of like dickinsonian pimps or we're seeing like cartel type organizations you also see suffragettes who are at this point fighting to get women the vote pushing to say like this is this is just another way that men are controlling women and that in particular, it's white women being attacked. And so then what happens is then this fear and the story that young white women are being captured and actually taken abroad. And what's the scariest boogeyman that they can conceive of in the 1900s? Oh, it's got to be, you know, an evil Muslim or an evil African who's trying to take these white women. And that's very scary and terrifying. And there's a lot of very racist posters we won't be showing you, but you can definitely find them. It's, it's definitely very present. Uh, interestingly, there are a few suffragettes at this time that are working to end the sale of Chinese women in U.S. cities in prostitution as well. But with the exception of like these one, these one or two efforts specifically within Chinatown, everything else is just entirely focused on white women. They're not concerned about black women in prostitution. They're not concerned about Hispanic women or native women in prostitution. They are very focused on protecting these sweet young white ladies from, from going into prostitution. This then leads us to 1910, which is the White Slave Traffic Act of 1910. Now, this act still exists, but it's known more commonly as, Seth? The Man Act. Bam. I always find that kind of ironic. M-A-N-N. So, the Man Act, uh, which is, I mean, still exists today, and it makes it a felony to transport women across state borders for, and this is my favorite string of legal phrasing, quote, prostitution or debauchery or any other immoral purpose, end quote. And so what they sold it on in the House was to address prostitution and human trafficking. They also talked about how they wanted to pr uh, prevent immor immorality more broadly from happening. And so you see the Mann Act actually at some points being used um, in segregation policies where, where they're saying that the Man Act has been violated because, say, uh, an interracial couple has crossed state borders together or a, you know, a husband and wife couple who are engaged in a crime have brought their child with them and crossed state borders. So the Man Act ends up basically being used as this very powerful shaming and uh, silencing tool, but it was also then just used more broadly to keep essentially people from prostituting across state borders. Well, I'm sure and I'm certain that they picked up 
human trafficking victims and perpetrators, and I'm sure that they picked up exploitative victims and perpetrators. They also picked up a lot of people who were willingly engaged in prostitution. And then later on in, um, during prohibition in gun and booze running as well, that, that was pulled up. Also happening right around that time is on the media end, we have sort of this media explosion of books, plays, and silent films about human trafficking. So there's a very famous book by John Dillon. It comes out in 1912, and it's called From Dance Hall to White Slavery. And what that one is about particularly is one one of the things that were really popular to go do back then was something called uh, a dance hall. And what you did as a man is you went to a dance hall and you paid an admission, and it could be anywhere from a penny all the way up to a quarter. And what you would pay for was the right, basically, to go and dance a certain number of dances with a girl. And these were not, this is not like strip club dancing. This is like straight up, we're waltzing. But it it, it was considered very inappropriate because these are women making money from hanging out with men and, and not getting, you know, sort of the attention or, or the control that they used to previously have over their parents. There was also a, a book that came out called In the Grip of the White Slave Trader that came out in 1911. And this was one of these books that is called A Penny Dreadful. So it was very inexpensive. You, you could buy it um, for pretty much next to nothing. It was printed on really cheap paper. And it was basically this, this true crime story about all of these women that are captured and forced into bondage. And it's by normally foreign men. A lot of these are also very anti-Semitic. They talk about how it's, it's the Jews who are causing this white slavery to happen in, in North America, which is very strange to me, but I mean, not surprising for the time period because the U S was pretty not great. Uh, when it came to, you know, equality, Still arguably not doing well. Um, and I will publish a list of 26. There's actually, I found a great website that literally some poor, poor man went through and read 26 different white slave slavery texts from the time and, and reads and reviews them. But on, a great one that I have read is called uh, The White Slaves of London. And that one that comes out later comes out in the 1930s, but it's basically the exact same thing that was previously published in the U.S., this idea of, of sweet country girls going into the urban workforce, being invited out by a swarthy, often described uh, Eastern European or Middle Eastern man, often to get ice cream, and then stolen at an ice cream parlor and pulled in. And this is the, the biggest one that I I would I would cite as sort of the one that sort of starts everything because it's the bestseller is in 1910 there's a book that's published called Noting the Traffic in Young Girls or War on the White Slave Trade the greatest crime in world's history and it has the tag tagline for God's sake do something and this 
it it runs it ran first in like a circular form in the Pall Mall magazine, which was very very famous, and talked about how in particular, and then eventually was was combined into a book and published, which was very popular for that time for that time period. And one of the things that it it actually cites is that how quote five pound virgins end quote so this is being sold in england so there's not that they weigh five pounds so they cost five pounds are sold to quote lecturous lecherous aristocratic blackguards after being snared trapped and outraged either under the influence of drugs or after a prolonged struggle in a locked room and i actually have the whole article as it was initially published online that i have have posted to you guys when it ran in the magazine it ran under the terrible title of the mage the maiden tribute of modern babylon uh it, it eventually ends up pulling into the book uh a little bit i think better but so you have a lot of discussion of sort of rape there's a lot of phrase the term maidenhead is used a lot which is uncomfortable i think for everyone mm-hmm. and yeah. you can you can buy this book it is still it is still published but i do warn you if you choose to go to amazon uh to purchase this text it has the creepiest cover I have ever seen. I don't know what the photo is that they picked for it, but it looks like they took a little girl and Ed Gein made her into a doll. It's not a good look. It's the the British copy of the book. It's not a good, not a, not a good read. Don't don't do that to yourself. You'll just be sad. But overall, you know, it's worthwhile to to check out if you're interested into this historic period. And then as we move into silent films taking off away from the books, because also like if you're a true crime nerd, you know that this is also a time when true crime exploded because people got really, really into this idea of, you know, I, I seeing gore, seeing, seeing horrible things and how, how to handle it. So the movie was called the big one is called the inside of the white slave traffic and you could go in and one of the things that they play is they showed you like they they put up a title card because it's silent that had all of the slang that they said was used by traffickers and so that you know if i if you want a a schmeiser that's a trafficker so again they're positioning uh jewish men as traffickers here but that i need the police i want a gillette blade well that's another name for a girl and so a lot of a lot of this film doesn't exist anymore but they actually have made reprints and i own it on dvd it's great to watch and so what you see in this one is is sort of the narrative that we later on see in trafficking sort of it's where parents get angry at their daughter they kick her out of the house and a trafficker picks up picks her up and then forces her in into slavery and then she is trapped she is forced uh she is then sold for three hundred dollars and she eventually dies and they show a shot of her grave it it's it's not it's not a great film uh traffic and souls was sort of a sequel to this film that was also published and you can actually that came out in 1913 and you can actually watch it on youtube which i think would be quite interesting for all of you to to watch and this was a silent crime drama i actually have the poster from trafficking in souls and the reason why i love it so much is that literally a man who looks like super mario if super mario was wearing was painted is like lurking behind the world's most poorly painted rocking chair 
while a woman in white tries to like rip open a door but can't and these like weird looming black figures one of which looks like a a police officer of some sort is just watching so but this movie like as terrible as it is now like in retrospect at the time rocks it and so this makes people freak out they they start watching like crazy people are demanding stories on this it's it's popping up in sort of all these penny dreadfuls uh, a book called white slave hell comes out that's just full of pictures when the birth of a, a nation which is a terrible film that comes out in 1915 that is still used by the ku klux klan today to justify hatred of of non-whites they feature a scene on white slavery this is huge it's it's i cannot under tell you how greatly important it is that this is this gets brought up yeah so that the president at the time woodrow wilson is known to have resegregated the white house and was overtly racist like more than usual but then looking at it from the government perspective, uh, JJ, I found it really interesting to see that the precursor to the FBI, the Bureau of Investigation, really was utilized to enforce the Mann Act, that they had to establish a national database so yep. that they could know who the prostitutes were, that like this was a really big motivating force for the Bureau. Yeah, and I was going to say, if you if you go into sort of any any history of sort of of prostitution in the u.s you're you're gonna see what sort of a breakdown of what was the actual intention of the man act there was a lot going going back and forth for it there's a phenomenal book called policing sexuality the man act and the making of the fbi i think that's what you might be referencing it's by jessica piley or plyley perhaps i can never know how to pronounce her name properly but it literally goes through fbi bureau history to talk about why the man act was developed and how they ended up using it from the 1910s on and it's it's an absolutely wonderful book i I really highly recommend it and you can you can get it now at this point i think it's been out since 2013 2014 so at this point it is not like a very expensive book sometimes academic books i think are prohibitively expensive but this one i think is definitely accessible for you if you're interested another thing that is relevant that was happening is especially around 1916 on is we had the great migration yes and in particular actually one of the things that the u.s does when asked you know what they're doing about the great migration both of internal populations and then uh, European populations coming to the U.S., what what they're going to do to to manage trafficking in that sense, their response is, we're going to actually place limits, we're going to place quotas on who can come into the country. And that's that's actually what's going to solve it, solve this problem, because we're not going to have young people coming into the U.S. And that's that's our solution. The other part of the Great Migration was the northward migration of African Americans who were finding it challenging to get anywhere in the South, but now they could legally move, or at least had more freedom to move. Yes. And so many moved to northern cities like Chicago, and that just caused uh, change and people to adapt and the fact that a lot of northerners were racist, like everyone in the country, basically. And when we say racist, it's more 
recognizing that uh, people had their views of who should be equal, of who was more superior or inferior. It doesn't necessarily mean hate, but when suddenly you have a bunch of African-Americans moving north into your city and it's a change, especially the way things were in the U.S. 100 years ago, it increased the variables that people could decide to panic over. Yes, very very much so. And again, this is this idea of morality is changing. People are changing. Suddenly people are, are going through integration whether they wanted to or not. And so all, all of that is happening very, very rapidly. And one of the ways that people respond is via sort of this, okay, well, we're going to legislate for safety. And by safety, we mean control in, in a particular way. And that sort of, I think, takes us to, after, after the media taking, taking off, well, the reason why we chose today to do this podcast is it takes us to World War I, the, the period of peace, World War II, and sort of the massive, cannot be understated, massive shift this had for people's views of morality, views of life, views of young people, views of how, you know, what... You know, had had we fallen away as a nation into just complete barbarism, you know, you see you see a massive moral panic, particularly with sort of two generations almost back to back of young men who are just absolutely destroyed by war. And we have another podcast coming up where Seth and I will be talking specifically about sort of the slavery that happened in, in World War One and then possibly maybe down the line about the slavery itself happened in, in World War II, but you just see a massive, massive change in sort of this idea of how, how do we manage morality? How do we, how do we take care of one another? How do we protect these remaining young people? But then you also have, because of the war, a massive influx of women in the workplace and also increased, again, integration of people from different nationalities, different ethnicities. You see, while there is sort of white flight after after the World War II into the countryside, you see increasing urbanization of formerly Southern Blacks and then also sort of foreign nationals coming over, escaping both World War I and World War II. This is how my side of the family ends up. My um, Italian side of the family ends up in the U.S., you know, in, in that interim period of between World War I and World War II. So you see sort of this sort of mass sort of changing about what it is to be an American, this conception changes. And part of this is this idea of, well, how, how do we protect our women? How do we come back from this? And that is, the answer to that, unfortunately, is we have a moral panic is, is what we have. And so we see a lot of slow rising of small, generally state-based laws in, in the U.S. that are primarily focused, again, on the control of prostitution and of the control of sort of morality in, in general. So this is when you also see a lot of people being arrested for what's defined as an immoral act, which is normally a homosexual act, which was covered under the Mann Act. So if I'm, am I seeing two guys together holding, holding hands? I can get them. 
Well, and part of the moral panic was that, like, women couldn't choose it voluntarily. Like, it was unthinkable that a woman could choose to be a prostitute, so they must have been tricked. Yes. Yeah. And that also, then, too, that any anyone who was mixing and and re, uh, like race mixing and things like that like mm-hmm. they must have been forced uh they they must have something morally wrong with them just just a lot so i've heard people that talk about sex trafficking now and trafficking in general and they talk about hey the white slavery panic of the early 1900s really it was all prostitution and they were just trying to control it and actually there was no trafficking we're not saying that. Yeah. Trafficking and slavery have existed in some form throughout our entire history. So it's not all trafficking, but we can't just dismiss the white slavery panic as nothing either. Like there No. No, and certainly again, there you're you're facing too before the boom, you know, there's a great depression. You know, I'm glossing over because like I got to get to 2018. In less than an hour, right? <laughs> like, I, mm-hmm. I gotta get there. So I'm, I'm running those quickly, but there's a Great Depression. There are two world wars where people literally think, like, the world is ending. There is stuff going on that is very difficult for, like, women to live, women to work, women to make money to, for, their, for them and their children to survive. We also see, too, what's happening at, at the end of the 50s is this idea of birth control becoming wildly available. So women are gaving, gaining more sexual agency and this idea that then maybe you're, you're not just waiting to have sex until you're married. And also maybe individuals, you know, are participating with sex with multiple partners by choice, for fun. Who knows? Um, and so you, you, you are seeing a lot of this sort of, of, of panic spread and diffuse. So where, whereas in the 1920s, going out, you know, a, a bunch, you know, an, a married woman in a car with a man still got a lot of attention. And, and by the time the 1950s rolls around, that's a regular date. But still, still there are these very firm sort of social boundaries of what is acceptable and what is not. And we're intentionally not saying anything about people's personal morality of whether it's good or bad or whether their choices are good or bad, because we're focusing on both the moral panic side of how it's sensationalized, but also we, we still like to focus on the trafficking side, like where's force fraud and coercion involved and are people actually in a state of slavery? That sort of thing. So what's next? So as we slide further and further, the, the big thing that hits is when we hit the, the moral panic that is what happens during the 60s. Seth, what's going on in America in the 1960s? Oh, let's see. We have the civil rights movement. Yep. We have leftist activity like activist activity including campus activity we have the continued challenge between the uh i guess the the uh, 50s red red scare and needing to call ourselves more of a christian country in order to compare ourselves positively to russia 
So all the things going on with the Soviet Union and uh, Cuba, Cuban Missile Crisis, where we think we might be in a nuclear war. Yeah, so especially Vietnam War. So we're seeing protests. We see the rise of the Black Panther Party in response to the rise of the KKK. It's very, people are, a lot of things are going on. It's also, we've got Woodstock. We've got, you know, the time of love. We got hippies. You know, it's it's a very interesting, weird time. We go to the moon. And then there's also, you know. The, J- JFK shot. Yeah, Martin Luther King is shot. Malcolm X is eventually shot. There's a lot happening. The Beatles happen. Jimi Hendrix happens. Uh, the Birds, which is a terrible film, and no one can tell me otherwise, happens from Alfred Hitchcock. There's just a lot going on. We finally we finally get spandex and bras, which let me tell you, it's a great moment. I'm, I'm just saying, there's a lot happening and a lot changing. And in it, in this mix, is this continued fear now of this panic that white slavery is continuing and happening. Uh, this continues through move movies keep happening. There's a movie called white slave girls, AKA prostitution that I've, I've published um, on here that you can look at that apparently pulls from, they say from the files of Interpol. I find that to be suspect. There are also a series of romance novels that are actually published until the late 90s. Again, I have a few of them. They're terrifying. That are romantic takes on sex trafficking. And a lot of what they focus on these novels is white women being kidnapped again by non-European men and forced to participate in a variety of sex. They're kind of in a weird BDSM-y way. I think it was sort of that idea of, well, you can't want sex, but this will be permissive for you we also have a lot of pulp magazines that have that have picked up in popularity from the 40s in into the 70s of true crime pulp magazines a lot of which deal with this idea of vice rings and and hollywood kidnappers and sex trafficking and that continues and picks up and so finally what we get to is in 1978 and 1986 the man act the, the White Slavery Act of 1910 and the Human Trafficking Act that we previously had in the U.S. is amended to focus entirely on prostitution. So again, it's this idea of we are having no separation between those in trafficking and those in prostitution. We are still not really concerned too, too much with labor. But what we are terrified of is white women being stolen and taken and then increasingly and this leads us into the 1980s and this we talk about again in the true crime case we have the satanic panic in the u.s where there's this fear that there are child pornography sex rings and child sex rings that are tied to satanism that are throughout the u.s that children are being kidnapped and and used for or that young women are being kidnapped and used by sort of shady drug cartels and then used in for nefarious purposes and like not nefarious, like in criminal purposes, but in like, we sacrifice you to Satan purposes. And that actually like mandates a lot of legislation. So we have a lot of legislation then pulling in at a federal and local level of how human trafficking actually works. And it still continues to position these young white women as the primary victims of slavery and that they are that the slavery that they're in is all sex sort of based 
and I'm going to quote directly from Joe Dozema here. Now, Joe Dozema, if you if you don't know her, she is uh, amazing uh, and phenomenal academic. I I adore her and I adore her work. She has a great book called Sex Slaves and Discourse Masters: The Construction of of Trafficking that particularly looks actually at the human the human trafficking angle from that of, of white slavery imagined. She also has three phenomenal articles that specifically do with this idea of white slavery, more or less, and then the agency of sex worker voices. One is called Now You See Her, Now You Don't, Sex Workers, the UN Trafficking Protocol Negotiation, Who Gets to Choose, Coercion Consent in the UN Trafficking Protocol, and then one of my favorites, which is what I'm going to cite for directly today, which is Loose Women or Lost Women, The Reemergence of the Myth of White Slavery and Contemporary Discourses of Trafficking in Women. And in that particular article, this this is a quote that like I use all the time when I'm trying to explain to people what it actually, like what I mean by what I'm talking about, sort of white slave trafficking. The emergence of narratives on white slavery and their reemergence in the moral panics and boundary crises of contemporary discourses on trafficking in women comes from historical analysis and contemporary representations of sex worker migration, quoting her later on, the narratives of innocent virginal victims pervade in the trafficking women discourse are a modern version of the myth of white slavery. These narratives reflect persisting anxieties about female sexuality and women's autonomy, racialized representations of the migrant other as helpless, childlike victims strip sex workers of their agency, and while the myth of trafficking in women white slavery is ostensibly about protecting women, the underlying moral concern is with the control of loose women. Through the denial of migrant sex workers' agency, these discourses serve to reinforce notions of female dependence and purity that seem to further marginalize sex workers and undermine their human rights. It is such a good article. She is such a phenomenal researcher. Get her book. Read her articles. It's so worth it because what she's talking about is this weird shift that happens in the late 80s, early 1990s, where increasingly we have politicians, academics, researchers, and activists all getting together and for some reason pivoting to what has sometimes been called the global south and saying, hey, we here in the global north have figured it out. We know how to save these women in prostitution in Africa. We know how to save these women in prostitution in the Middle East. We know how to save these women in prostitution in Asia and how we're going to do that is we're going to end prostitution because these poor women can't do it on their own. Somewhere Audre Lorde is like spinning, freaking out because she can like sense it, this this nonsense. And then on top of that, that what's what's going on is that then the women in the U.S. who even say that they're in prostitution by choice, they must be wrong. They, they've been tricked. They just don't understand. They just don't get it. They don't know they're harming themselves. And if we can just re-educate them, we being sort of this moral Western identity, we can save them. And so you have two narratives then, well, actually more like three narratives that are all sort of coexisting at the same time and get woven into this really dysfunctional rope. One being that it is not possible to choose prostitution. Anyone who chooses prostitution is is deviant or lesser or other and just doesn't get how they're harming themselves and need to be saved. Two, women in foreign contexts, non-white women, women who are other are forced into prostitution because they're weak and need to be saved. And three, there are these nefarious purposes out there that are trying to force women, these weak women, into committing these heinous acts, and we need to prosecute those people. 
And that really dominates human trafficking discourse for a, for a very long time, leading, I would say, into the Trafficking and Violence Protection Act, the TVPA we cite a lot that happens originally in 2000, where the Bush administration says, we're going to fight sex slavery worldwide. We're going to fight it domestically. This is a this is a priority for us uh, that the TVPA is going to fight in particular, like direct language violence against women and children. And we're going to treat sex trafficking victims and that we're going to restrict sex trafficking broadly. We don't really see sort of the, the bringing in of more labor traffic and more inclusive language until renews of the act in 2004, 2006, and 2008. And so all of this, though, like comes like a lot of the language in the TVPA, a lot of the way that academics looked at human trafficking for a long time, the way that the raid and rescue businesses that exploded in the in the early 2000s, all of that comes from a fear of white trafficking, white slavery trafficking. And I think nothing incorporates this nonsense more than everybody's favorite film. 2008 blockbuster hit, Taken. And what happens with Taken is you see Liam Neeson with a terrible dye job uh, having his daughter when she's off to France with a terrible friend uh, getting kidnapped by Middle Eastern men, whisked away to be sold to other Middle Eastern men, drugged uh, and sold into sex trafficking. And then Liam Neeson commits a number of, of murders and tortures to, to get her back. That story Literally, the things that play out, her being tied to a bed, her being administered, administered intravenous drugs, her dressed up and placed on a stage while men bet on her in a dark room. These things actually mirror almost exactly in a way that is very, very interesting, the Trafficking in Souls movie from 1915. So it's, it's just it's a reimagining of this narrative that has existed since the 1900s. And there's another academic I love, Ronald Weitzer. He's a sociologist who specializes in um, criminology. And his, his book from 2012 is called Legalizing Prostitution from Illicit Vice to Lawful Business. It is amazing. It is probably one of the best discussions of prostitution and policing that I've seen uh, done. But he also has a, a really great article. I mean, he has like, well, he's one of these guys whose like CV is like 18 pages and just makes you really sad. And yeah, it just, it, it's hurtful. I look at his CV and I'm like, how, how do I manage this? But he has an article from 2005 called the growing moral panic over prostitution and sex trafficking, where he specifically goes into how it is that human trafficking and contemporary slavery and this idea of prostitution panic, how it's just a reformat of, of morality panic from the 1900s. And I'm going to cite directly so this is him talking um, particularly about the TVPA coming up again for renewal. And he says the issue of sex trafficking has become increasingly politicized in recent years due to the efforts of an influential moral crusade. The social construction of sex trafficking and prostitution more generally and the discourse of leading activists and organizations within the crusade concludes that the central claims are problematic, unsubstantiated, and demonstrably false. My analysis, and he's talking, this is the paper he's presenting, documents the increasing endorsement and institutionalization, and institutionalization of crusade ideology in U.S. government policy and practice. So essentially, white slavery, which is 
was a real thing and then became sort of a moral panic, sort of a, a distorted view of what was actually happening in America, somehow survives for over 100 years and actually only seems to, to grow in power over time uh, until now, where I think, like, what? how many Taken sequels are we on now? There's a TV series now. Oh, is there seriously a TV series? Mm-hmm. No. But uh, part of what I may have mentioned in another podcast and with, with Taken, and, you know, this is like a middle upper middle class family which is part of the problem but that no they are not it, uh, they're not, they're not just upper middle class Seth they're upper 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 class she gets a pony for her birthday that's right and the pony they're they not bring poor. to their house in the suburbs and there's a pool they're not she, poor but that's precisely you. why she got a thoroughbred traffickers, that's, that's why traffickers don't go after those type of girls because the families have resources yeah, people notice when little like this is terrible, but we are still talking about John Benet Ramsey. Little, little. We're based like, in Colorado, is, so there's an extra y- grown. Yeah, like it's just it's sort of one of those things where like young young little black children go disappearing every day, and they don't get the attention that little white children do. Patrice O'Neill, my favorite comedian, has a, has a great bit about that about Natalie Holl- Holloway, what when she first went missing, and what is had interestingly the Jordan Vandersloot case has some ties to human trafficking. But when she first went missing, he he went up on stage at one of his gigs and rattled off a list of like 15 women. He was like, does anyone know who those are? And he was like, no. He was like, how about Natalie Holloway? And everybody responded in, in the theater. And he said, yeah, those other girls were the same, were like her same age and disappeared on the same day. But mm-hmm. none of them were like wealthy, pretty white girls who were very photogenic. And that doesn't mean we don't pay attention to those cases. We should pay attention to those cases, too. It just means, what do you do? You know, but there's very clearly a media bias. So a few other policy aspects more recently that uh, play into this. You have real immigration issues that need to be dealt with in the United States. And there are those who have jumped onto the anti-trafficking argument because they could use it as justification to further lock down the border while sounding nice, like we're trying to protect these people. Now, it's a mixed bag and it imputing motive gets difficult too. But the fact that that anti-trafficking narrative is useful for hardline border control people. So so that's one thing. Now, the Bush administration especially had a positive slant I could give is they really believed that we could extend American values and democracy throughout the world. Now, I believe in human rights and universal values, and while I think it could be difficult to translate them and implement them, I believe there are some universal values and that there are things that we should advocate for. Having said that, in in trying to extend an American peace and American values, it's one thing to say, okay, we need to get certain bad terrorists and we need to save these women in other countries, but it's not holistic enough. And that's part of the problem with the raid and rescue model as well. It's like, of course, we want women who don't want to be in these situations to be able to get out of them. And some women are controlled in ways that make that very difficult. However, what would be really great is if there were better economies where people made more money. So it would be easier for women not to get under the thumb of traffickers 
yes. or to choose, or if they don't want to do prostitution, that they could choose something else. And you know, also that's men harder. can be involved in prostitution too. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about them at all in this podcast because they're very little mentioned in any of this panic or this legislation. But men can be equally involved. U.S. policy and neoliberalism, which is not liberalism, it's free markets and free trade, neither of which are truly free, but that's a whole other matter entirely. But like the these policies that we have can be disruptive. And d- despite anybody's good intentions, not always good intentions either. And if we're going to deal with things like trafficking, just trying to save the damsel in distress from the evil mean trafficker who is often foreign, other color, and in in many ways other, aside from being problematic, that doesn't get at some of the underlying structural issues that lead to real trafficking in the world. Well said, Seth. So conclusions. Moral panics, including the overfocus on sex trafficking and overfocus on child sex trafficking, which are very real, horrible problems, they can distort the issue and keep us from having more holistic views of things. And it also can make it harder to fund some of the other efforts, such as uh, labor trafficking. And I, I guess we could bring in the whole white savior trope as well that there are people we've talked to in law enforcement who will freely admit that it's a lot more glorious to go and track down the bad person who's trafficking a girl than it is to look through payroll records to try to help the man who's being trafficked for labor. And I can understand, but that's a problem. Yeah, it's a major problem. And this concerns who gets construed as being like a perfect victim and who doesn't. And I would really recommend that y'all check out, if this is something you're interested in, the very beginning of the um, Monica Peterson podcast that we did. So any other conclusions, JJ? That's, I mean, just be very wary of anything that, actually, you can be weary of it too. You can be tired too. Of anything that you find, you know, anytime that there's a, there's a massive news story and, and things of that nature, just, just do a little digging, do a little investigation. And always position, you know, think about, well, why is this sort of person being positioned as a victim and other people aren't? These things matter. All right. Thanks for listening. We hope that was helpful to all of you. Boom. Go watch one of these terrible movies. I recommend it. Okay. Bye. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.